From the crossroads of America in the Hoosier state of Indiana, this is Get In, the podcast focused on the unfolding stories and extraordinary innovations happening right now in the heartland. I'm Matt Hunkler, CEO at Powder Keg, and I will be one of your hosts for today's conversation. I'm joined in studio by co-hosts Christopher Toth Day, CEO at Elevate Ventures, and Nate Spangle, head of community here at Powder Keg. And on the show today is Noel Paul, CEO at Tiger Careers and Consulting, and previous global leader of corporate responsibility at Alanco, and global program leader at Lilly. Wow, this is the greatest country. You have your freedoms and you get to decide whether you're gonna be successful and how successful instead of it being predetermined for you. Prior to starting Tiger Careers in 2018, Noel Paul was the global leader of corporate responsibility at Alanco and the global program leader for international MBA recruiting at Eli Lilly. He is now an executive mentor at Purdue Foundry, an accelerator and incubator program in Indiana, and he works with the International Center and actually coaches expats through his consulting work at his company, Tiger Careers and Consulting. On today's show, we will be talking about transitioning from large corporations to entrepreneurship. I'm sure we'll be covering corporate innovation and responsibility, and of course, talent attraction and everything else that goes into entrepreneurship. Noel, welcome to Get In. Thanks very much for having me, gang. Could we just shorten your bio to like hashtag rockstar? Hashtag <laughs> rockstar. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. I, I I'm grateful. So. I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had. You're not originally born and raised in, in Indiana. Is that right? Uh, not born, but yes, raised. So I was born in Pakistan and uh, my family moved us here to Indianapolis when I was six years old. Ironically, it was between New York City and Indianapolis. And you my chose, dad right? made the right well, choice. Uh, the universe chose because my dad's cousin was in New York City and he got a job in Saudi Arabia six months before we came. So by default, wow. the support structure was only in Indianapolis. So my dad had really good friends. And when we landed, there was already half a duplex. It was already furnished. They already had a car for us. There was food in the fridge. And so thank you for the Sanger family for blessing wow. us with a soft landing. How did you know the Sanger family? My parents knew them back home. So, so you were neighbors been, back home and then, and they had moved here. And they'd already moved here. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's wow. incredible. Do you have memories from Pakistan? Yes. Very few, but a few key ones. So I remember I was, I remember things like going to school cause I was a kindergartner, right? Literally going in a horse and buggy or on my dad's scooter. I knew we were kinfolk. I'm sorry. I used to take a horse and buggy to church on Sundays. Oh, wow. See, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So then I, I don't like, have that claim to fame. <laughs> I have zero horse and buggy experience. Yeah. I was also unfortunately part of the 1971 war between India and Pakistan. And I was five years old, but ironically enough that we moved to the States. And even though India was the enemy, I moved here to the United States and I married someone from India. So it's interesting how it works out. And then very close to the Indian community, even being president of the India Association of Indianapolis as a Pakistani was a great kind of reassurance that cultural divides can be bridged. And mm -hmm. that's what makes America great. That is what makes America great. I agree. Are there any moments that, are there a few moments that stick out from when you were in Pakistan for those first five, six years? Yeah. So uh, I mentioned to you, like going to school, I remember looking over the courtyard and eating lunch while the uh, older guys played volleyball in the courtyard. One specific memory is that during the war, there was a bomber that flew overhead and my mom was changing my clothes on the wicker cot in the open terrace and she flipped over the wicker cot and threw me underneath the covered area and uh, just to protect us. And um, later on, my uncle took me 
to see where the bomb had landed. And so I, I remember walking around the perimeter of the crater to see where the, the landing had, had done. And we were also, ironically enough, I was a five-year-old with a military uniform and a whistle so that when there were air raids, my uncle and I were supposed to go out into the streets and blow whistles to tell all the cars to mm-hmm. pull to the side or stop driving during the air raids. And it was just Ooh. a very unique kind of experience that, again, built gratitude for when coming to the States is to say, wow, this is the greatest country. You have your freedoms and you get to decide whether you're going to be successful and how successful instead of it being predetermined for you. Do you you remember that airplane ride? Like what, do you remember what you were thinking? Like when your parents, when you knew for sure that you're moving to America, what was the feeling? Yeah, two things, two things stick out. One is I remember that we had a big party the day before we left and we have a picture still today of all of us wearing money necklaces <laughs> right, to celebrate us coming to America, right? And I remember my dad telling me Just like me the that, movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and, my, and actually, I did work at McDonald's. That's awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. And, and so did my wife, ironically. And so and a lot of our friends and family and cousins and stuff like that. But the, the party before the necklaces, and I remember my dad telling me that the valuation of the currency was so impacted that we ended up using those necklaces of money for the tickets, and then, no way. yeah. And then the second thing I remember is, I can't remember if we flew into LaGuardia and went to JFK or flew in JFK and went to LaGuardia, but there was a helicopter that moved us from one city, one, one airport to the other. And I still remember the lights over New York City looking out at the helicopter. Why we were in a helicopter, I have no idea, but I still remember the lights, the red lights on the back of the cars, the white lights on the other side of the cars, looking down as a little boy going, Wow, what is this? Yeah, and, yeah. totally De- different environment. Definitely clear memories. And uh, this year was 50 years since we landed. So Valentine's Day, 1973, this year celebrated 50 years landing in the city. Oh, it's congratulations. Kind of, yeah. yeah, thank you. You've achieved some remarkable things with your career, working at companies like Elanco, Eli Lilly. Can you help us understand the, the steps that it took? Because there are a lot of people want to work with big companies like that who are doing innovative things and the leader of their industry. And it's not always clear what the right path is to get there. Sure. What was your path? Let me start by saying that I live in gratitude. So I don't know that I had a firm path going in to get there. I knew that I didn't want to do a doctor path, right? But I loved math and science. And actually, when I was coming up, I told my parents, I'm like, I either want to go into sports broadcasting or I want to go to engineering. And back in the day, there were only three channels on TV, right? And so my parents would say, that means there's only three sports broadcaster jobs in each city because there's only ABC, CBS, and NBC. So if there's only three jobs per city, maybe you should do the engineering route. (laughs) And fast forward, there's ESPN now, but I'm still glad I did the engineering path. So I went to Purdue for engineering and luckily enough, got a co-op opportunity. And so I co-op with the Indiana Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to pay for my undergrad because I would live at home, save the money from one semester, to pay for the college for the next semester. So that got me through. And then my senior year, I was an RA. And back in the day, Purdue would pay for your room, board, and tuition. So all the money I'd saved up for my senior year, I banked it. And that was just a great opportunity to get my undergrad paid for. What was the culture like at Purdue? Because Purdue now is top engineering school in the country. Yeah. Just graduating incredible talent, is world-renowned for its engineering talent, STEM programs. What was it like when you were there? 
I think if I tried to get into and out of Purdue today, I'm not sure that I could. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I got in a window where they just dropped the standards or something like that. It was definitely hard. I went in thinking chemical engineering and I took freshman chemistry and it kicked my butt. And I'm like, I'm not doing chemical engineering. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, So then I went to civil engineering because we had a couple family friends that were structural engineers and they were like, okay. And, but we had a great, I had a personally a great experience uh, academically, socially. I still keep in touch with my undergrad roommates to this day. That's cool. And being back on campus, I went back for my MBA. Lily sponsored me to go back to Purdue and get my MBA from Craner. My daughter did her industrial engineering degree from Purdue and graduated in 2020. So strong ties to the campus, but fully respect and I've always respected the Purdue engineering program and the campus and the experience that students and families really experience. So big fan, boiler up. (laughs) Boiler up. I love it. Yeah. It's a remarkable kind of ecosystem there. And I appreciate you sharing that. So what was your path out of Purdue? Was it like, Hey, go find a job at a big company and He said civil engineering, right? In your undergrad? Yeah. So that seems like an interesting pathway to end up at a Lily that takes you back to get your MBA. Because when I think civil engineering, which this could be way off, but I think of like architect type engineering, right? You're you're spot spot on, Nate. You're spot on. I I wasn't planning on going to Lily or pharma or anything like that. So civil engineers don't work at predominantly pharma companies, right? So chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, double E's, electrical engineers work in those kind of industries. So I had co-opted at the Indian Department of Transportation and I had an offer for them, but I knew that I didn't want to do engineering my whole life. And that's what that allowed me to do. It paid for my school and told me that's not what I wanted to do. So it was a great experience on <laughs> yeah. both fronts, yeah. right? And so you so, figured that out while you're in school. You're like going to be a civil engineer. Like that's what you're getting your degree in. Right. And before you're done with school, you're like, I don't want to do this forever. Yeah, I don't want to do this forever. So then I started to say, okay, so where can I go do engineering for a little while? Because I did have a goal to get my professional engineer's license, right? For civils, that matters. And you have to have five years of experience and you have to pass the big exam and stuff like that. So I said, my goal is do some engineering work for a while, get my PE, but not do engineering forever. And I'd always even thought about doing business, um, sorry, doing my MBA right after undergrad. But then people were saying, no, go out and get some work experience first. I said, okay, cool. So my, my plan was if I can get into a firm, a large multinational, that was my criteria that allows me to do engineering for a while, but then demonstrates in the interview process that engineers can do different things in their careers. Cause I was looking mm-hmm. for a long-term career. So I had an offer from marathon oil and an offer from Exxon, which was not Exxon mobile, but just Exxon down in Houston. And then literally I was in the decision-making process thinking that I'm going to Houston for Exxon late stage in the recruiting process. I see a job posting from Lilly and a physical job posting, like on the bulletin board, because this is pre internet, right? Amazing. (laughs) I'm like, Lilly's hiring civil engineers. Cause I knew Lilly from being in Indiana. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, I applied for the job, but I didn't, I used up all my points. So I went in that morning with my resume and I said to the you recruiter, mean points. so at, at Purdue, you have to bid on interview slots no way. based on points. I'd already used up all my points. So uh. that morning of that Lily was interviewing, I went to the career center and I went to the Lily recruiter. His name was Mel Crichton, mechanical engineer. And I said, Mr. Crichton, I did not have enough points to sign up for the interviews, but I'd be really interested in Lily. Here's my resume. And he said, Hey, I have a break between 10 and 1020. Come back during my break. And so I went home, I changed into my suit, I rode my bike back to the career center and he interviewed me. Wow. And I got the plant visit. Wow. And I got the job offer. 
So then it was Lily and Exxon were the two finalists. And my current wife of 30 years was my girlfriend at the time. Remember, I'm Pakistani, she's Indian. And so she said to me, if you go to Houston, what about us? And she was going to school at University of Toledo. And I'm like, you're right. So then I took the Lily job, which paid less, right? Significantly less. And, but it was the best decision she ever made. (laughs) (laughs) For us. (laughs) So 28 years later, I retired from that company. That's amazing. Yeah. Are you ready to transform your brand with award-winning video content that captures your vision and connects with your audience? Check out Alchemy, the experts at building your brand using video. From story-driven social media snippets that leave a lasting impression to compelling full-length documentaries, they have got the expertise to take your brand to the next level. Alchemy is actually our video partner here on Get In, and they do amazing work. All the videos across social, uh, across YouTube, all that is done by Alchemy, and, and they're an amazing partner to work with. Reach out to me, Nate, at Powder Keg, or check out alchemyfilmco.com to get connected with Alden and his team. They will take care of all of your video needs. What I love is that single decision yeah. to walk into that recruiter's office and say, hey, I used up all my points. I would love to interview is that single decision of taking the extra whatever it was, 15 minutes, if it's in the same building, that might have been an extra five minutes, to just go that extra mile, right? And, and personally reach out to whomever it is that's recruiting and say, I'd like a shot. Yeah. That yeah. is a and, reoccurring and it, theme. Yeah. with We have some pretty spectacular guests on here, and it is a reoccurring theme that they can like almost pinpoint it to one moment where yep. they just trusted their gut did this kind of like unorthodox thing. Mm-hmm. Like you show up there. I don't have any points, but I'm taking a risk here. I want to, I'd love to learn more about Lily. Yeah. And you stay there for 28 years. Yeah. One moment as a college senior. Yeah. But look, I look at it differently, right? Yes, I did take that chance. But my gratitude is with Mr. Mel Crichton. Yep. Because he said, I don't have any interview slots, but I'm willing to talk to you during my break. Okay, Mm. so the defining moment, you could argue, is not Noel going in at eight o'clock in the morning before the interviews start. It's Mr. Mel Crichton, the recruiter or the engineer saying, I'm willing to take a chance on you. So my gratitude is to Mel Crichton. Do you? So that's a good example of of an outstretched hand foreshadowing for rally speech. (laughs) An outstretched hand, right? As a responsibility of all of us, right? To the next Mm -hmm. generation. Yeah. So check this out. So now... Fast forward, I'm running Lily's MBA program globally. Do you think I ever took a break? Yeah, probably during, not. During career fairs? No, yeah. I bet not. I interviewed and was willing to talk to everyone. Why? Because I had to pay it forward because Mel changed my life. I love it. Oh, okay. Man. I love Ch- that mindset. Chills. I got chills. That's so... Oh. That's awesome. How'd you find yourself in that role at Lily? Yeah, I mentioned that my goal was to do some engineering for a while and then do something different. So I had hit five years. I Lily was really supportive of engineers taking their professional engineering exam. Mm. And they even said, hey, take the courses, get together and do study groups on company time because they really perform, they really support that professional engineering degree license. So I took the test, I passed. And so I got my PE. So then I went to my boss. Remember, there's no job postings back in the day. And I go to Nate Lewis and I'm like, Nate, are there any kind of business oriented roles for an engineer to step into? So he literally brings me a piece of paper that says, here's an email I got. It's a job description for a one-year temp assignment in HR. And they're looking for project management experience, but you don't have to have HR experience. So me and three other civil engineer buddies, or two, two other civil engineer buddies, all three of us applied for the job. Well, I got the job. 
And so I got a one-year temp assignment to go lead a project to bring all of our 13,000 U.S. employees onto a automated benefits enrollment process, mm. right? Because it was by paper, and so we automated it, right? Automated meaning we did it by phone. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we put in a call center and all this stuff like that. We redesigned the benefits. And after one year, they said, do you want to stick around? We have more projects for you to do. You did good. And I'm like, okay, sure. Then after that, the, the, the question was, are you going back to engineering or do you want to declare HR as your new kind of functional home? Mm-hmm. And I said, I'd love to declare HR. Because I was interested in business, the HR opportunity they were throwing at me was to support the global marketing function. And that was going to be my HR role after this project role. And I'm like, oh, cool, because that gives me some exposure to the global marketing area. And I was thinking about my MBA anyway. And so I said, yes, I'm going to declare HR as my new role, as my new functional home. So from that global marketing HR experience, that's when I got sponsored to do my MBA. So that's where it, it really led into that 19 years of the 28 years at Lilly being in HR. My entire career has been spent working at high growth tech companies. And the largest company I've ever worked for is maybe 150 people. Yeah. What does it take to succeed at a company of the scale and size of an Eli Lilly? What are the things that you learned early on that gave you that trajectory to keep reaching new heights and it kept the momentum going in your career there? Yeah. So first I say Lilly raised me, right? So that culture, those values, I joined when I was 22 years old. And I retired when I was 51. So 29 years, 28 years in that organization. And I'm telling you, I respect that company. I respect that culture. I respect the leadership, both historical and current and already future. Um, And so a lot of credit goes to Lily, right? But what Lily allows you to do is to say, if you want to pursue something, they will support you. They will enable you. And if you keep doing good things, then good things will happen, right? And that's where my focus was, is I really wanted to have an impact in the roles that I was given. I wanted to make improvements. So this whole concept of Eli Lilly's quote is, find what you, take what you find here and make it better. So I was raised in a a continuous improvement mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, and also I think coming back to my personal upbringing, you know, coming to America was this huge opportunity. I remember my dad would say, America is the greatest country in the world, son, right? And my mom would say, education, right? And so they risked so much to come here, right? Yeah. And so that was an internal motivator for me to say, man, I want to make the most of this opportunity every aspect of my life. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really pursued that. And Lily would help you grow. I had some great bosses, right? I can think of an Italian boss named Alessandro Franchi. I reported to him in 1996 to 1998 in that global marketing HR role. Mm-hmm. I just had brunch with him at Cafe Bundi in December. He's 73. Still love him. Still respect him. We're still connected. And that's just how Lily teaches you is the importance of relationships relationships really matter. What lesson did you learn from him that stayed with you the most? I would say he helped me become assertive. Yeah. Yeah. He ripped me a new one. <laughs> he really did. But the, the constructively. Thing, yeah, yeah. He really. Can, I mean, can, because can you tell us the story? Yeah. About so he, that? he was very hard on me, but yeah. he was very supportive of me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there were days when I loved him and there were days when I hated him, but I grew so much for, from working with him. And then he asked me to come 
again in 2000 to build and create a whole new recruiting structure within the firm. Mm. And so that was an amazing build. Talk about entrepreneurial, talk about startup mindset, talk yeah. about business processes, changing the way we do things. But yeah, I think it was really around the area of assertiveness. And, and what he would say is, Noel, you're too nice. You need to assert yourself. And he even gave me, or I, somehow I got some audio tapes and a book and stuff like that. And do you remember what those were? Yeah, this whole concept of the example was because it became personal. So are you the kind of person that if everyone wants to go to Chinese restaurant for dinner and you've had Chinese for the last seven days, will you say, okay, let's go to Chinese? Or are you comfortable saying, hey guys, I've had Chinese for the last seven days. If we can do Mexican, let's go Mexican. For me, that stuck with me hmm. because I was the guy that would say, okay, let's just do Chinese without ever expressing the fact that I've even had seven days of Chinese. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So now I can say, Hey guys, I've had seven days of Chinese. So if you still want to go Chinese, I'm going to go get some Mexican food and I'll sit at the Chinese table with you. Mm -hmm. And I can assert myself in that way, personally, professionally, because of that growth. That's a great example. I want to double click in. You, you talk about you, you went and grew this whole new function. You're about entrepreneurship at yeah, you're rolling with, within Eli Lilly. Uh -huh. right? When I think of Eli Lilly, I think of this massive corporation. It's like you show up, you do your job. And say, if I take a sick day, does it affect Eli Lilly's stock? Is it going to drop down? Probably not. But you're talking about how you actually move the needle forward on something. Does that happen a lot there? It has to, right? Because yeah. Lilly or any large organization is really a collective of individual moving parts. And if those, whether you have 200,000 employees or 50,000 employees, or 150 employees, the pieces need to be moving forward in order for the whole to move forward. So that's why the talent you attract to your organization, regardless of the size, that person has a role, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason organizations move forward, and I'm talking you know, generically now, is each individual has to come to work that day and say, I wanna move the needle on the scope of work I'm responsible for. Did right? you ever get frustrated by running into red tape or road bumps? Because I, I feel like that is something in the startup ecosystem. You hear about how hard it is to not get anything done at big corporations. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, remember, I, I'm high energy. Like people tell me, Noel, you're always in gear five. I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> and if you're at gear five and the others in the organization want to move at gear three or they are pulling your reins to let you drive change or at the pace of change that you want to drive, it can be frustrating. So what would happen is I would naturally gravitate to areas where people were, there were more people operating gears four and five, right? Mm -hmm. So I stayed close to the commercial side of Lilly, right? And a little bit in the manufacturing side because of my engineering background, because I wanted to be where the action was, right? So for example, that global marketing role in HR, right? That was great because we were working across cultures, we were building global strategies. And even though I was not doing the marketing, I was around people that were doing that. So it gave me energy. And then the role after that, I went to be the HR leader for our US business to business group. Okay. Now that group was 300 employees, a carve out of how do we manage our account relationships with at that time HMOs. And I told my hiring manager, Brad, who I still have a relationship with, right? Brad, I said, Brad, I'll come take this job, but I need to be on the leadership team table. I need to be the HR leader for the USB2B group. Otherwise, it's not going to be a real stretch for me. He's like, of course, you're the HR leader. I'll coach you from here. 
And you're- Way to be assertive. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. Thank you, Sandro. <laughs> we agreed that was gonna be the stretch opportunity for me is to be on that leadership team with the leaders of the BUSB2B. We did this huge organizational transformation, right? To your point, Nate, is like those 300 people, we had to make the change of how we approached our account management mm -hmm. business processes, the talent that we had coming into the organization, the marketing tools. We were using the same detail sheet as we would for a diabetes endocrinologist in Greenwood with a medical director at Kaiser Permanente that had 9 million lives of diabetic patients. And so we had to transform how we did business to business marketing. Mm -hmm. And so it was a two year journey. I remember meeting in the A-frame of Rick's Boatyard with our leadership team, doing poster sessions, changing our mission, vision, um, the capabilities of people we wanted to bring into that organization, how we coached and developed people so we'd be an attractive place to have talent come into because that B2B experience was going to be crucial for future leaders mm -hmm. of pharma and future leaders of Lilly. Because if they didn't appreciate the payer, they were going to have huge misses on their big, important strategic business decisions. Mm -hmm. So we did a two-year organizational transformation. And manufacturing might have been slow. Medical might have been slow. R&D might have been slow. So, Nate, to your point, those 300 people, we had to move the needle. Mm -hmm. It was critical to Lilly's business success. Nine billion dollars were coming through that account management. That, so there, there, there's a lot of corporates that either don't have innovation centers today, that are th but know they need to do it. They're thinking about doing it. There are um, corporations that have innovation centers that maybe not, maybe they aren't going well. Maybe they look at them as profit centers when maybe it shouldn't be looked at as a profit center. Maybe mm -hmm. it should be. And there's corporations that are doing really well at innovation. So can you talk about two, two high-level questions and one has a part A, part B. Mm -hmm. So corporate innovation, if you're thinking about setting up corporate innovation or you're doing it today and it just doesn't seem to be going well for some reason, what are some of the things that you've seen work really well and, and the flip side, the mistakes that were made and how something was set up that you had to unwind maybe several years later? Yeah. And then the flip side from the entrepreneurial side is every startup, the dream is to get a relationship with a corporate, right? Mm -hmm. As a early adopter, first time buyer, whatever it may be. And sometimes what it, the dog catches the car, so to speak. <laughs> and then maybe you regret getting that early corporate customer because they suck all the life out of you wanting a different set of, of, of product requirements that don't serve the core market. Can you talk about the good and the bad on both sides of that equation yeah. that you've seen? Yeah, to process your question, right? The first part is, corporate innovation, what's worked and what hasn't worked, right? Mm -hmm. Second is more in the entrepreneurial side yeah. is how does securing a corporate client either help or sometimes hinder yeah. the success of an entrepreneurial yeah. startup, right? Okay, yep. fair. Okay. I yep. just want to make sure I process that. Yep. So I think on the- on, a lot of words in uh, one question. That's okay, man. It's okay. I got you. I got you. Keep me on track though. Uh, <laughs> so on the first side, I would say in a corporate environment, innovation can happen, does happen. Innovation can fail and does fail. And I think a lot of that is really specific to two things. One is what's the culture in that organization in terms of nurturing that innovation, right? And their kind of what I call tolerance for it, acceptance for it, thirst for it, mm. right? So that culture is really going to matter, right? And the second part that really matters is the people, right? And I'm talking specifically the leadership, because I think leadership is super critical on nurturing that culture, on nurturing those ideas, on nurturing that innovation, 
Because if you have leaders that are risk tolerant and that are oriented towards coaching from failure versus afraid of failure or not wanting to fail, no one wants to fail. But if you have an outlook that says, look, we're going to learn from this. And if we do this and we get 75%, then we can fix the other 25% and keep going and improve it, right? But if you're, if you say 75% is not enough as a threshold to advance, then you're really risking not innovating. And someone else at another company, at a competitor, at a disruptor, at a startup could beat you to the punch because their risk tolerance and their tolerance for failure and their willingness to learn from failure is greater than yours. So I think a lot of it has to do with <coughs> excuse me, the organizational culture and the leaders and how they view all those elements of risk tolerance, learning from failure, their tolerance to coach and willingness to coach through those stumbles versus saying, I don't want to take that risk. Does that help? Yeah. 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 And then I think on the entrepreneurial side, having coached several startups and being in a startup for a while in the health tech sector, and then my own startup, right, is you have to keep going, right? You just Amen. can't. Yeah, you have to keep going. You just can't risk not pursuing that client or not pursuing that big corporate partnership. But at the same time, if you don't get that corporate partnership, then what did you learn about why that corporate partnership did not accept you? And so how do you tweak your product? How do you tweak, tweak your process? How do you tweak your value proposition? Because you have to keep going, but you have to keep learning, right? And so I don't think it's a binary answer of don't innovate because I don't think that's an acceptable answer. Mm -hmm. You have to innovate. Right. You have to continuously innovate, but that's a big word. So you can think about continuously improving, which is more incremental, right? Sometimes we're chasing the holy grail of this big, huge destination of we innovated. No, you innovate by continuously improving and you continuously improve by continuously learning mm -hmm. yep. and you continuously learn by trying and it's okay to fail. And if you don't have that outlook, then you're going to struggle, man. It's a verb, not a noun. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. not a destination. It's that whole, you're always working on it. Yeah. I do think Tofa has, has mentioned this before, and I'd love to hear your take on out kicking your coverage a little bit as a startup. Let's say you do secure that massive, the mansion that you had to paint, right? Oh. We sold this huge contract. You're, what would you say to leaders that maybe secure that? And when is it time to cut ties or figure out a, a strategy when you oversold, you can't deliver, or they're taking too much of your time, resources, that whole thing from a startup perspective? I, I think you got to finish the job, right? Because if that big man, even if you lose $3,500. Yeah. <laughs> even if you lose 3500 Hypothetically. Right? Hypothetically. <laughs> Good memories, huh, Toby? Yes. <laughs> the, the thing is, you have to finish the job because your credibility, right? My dad taught me this. He's, he taught me about your credit. Your credit matters. And what I've adopted like for FICO? myself. Yeah, exactly. Your credit score matters, right? So I've adapted that phrase to say your credit matters, but so does your credibility. Mm. Okay. So your credit and your credibility matters. So if you got that one mansion and you got in over your head, finish the job, right? Finish it to the best of your abilities. If you take a loss on it, that's okay. Because why? If you do that mansion has friends, right? And that mansion can be your referral. And you want to be able to tell 
in the smaller neighborhood, like I did this mansion and you can talk to that client and they'll say good things about our firm, about our, mm-hmm. their experience. And that is how it works. We all know. I learned this phrase when I was at the health tech startup. I was at a military conference in D.C. And I told him, I'm like, I'm going to give you credit for this phrase. He said, the difference between a contact and a contract is just one letter, the letter R. And that R stands for relationships. Oh, okay? yes. Yeah. And I don't remember his name. I think it was either Dan or Doug or something like that. And I'm like, that's not my phrase. That's your phrase. Washington, D.C. conference in October of 2019 or something like that. And I'm like, that's your phrase, but I'm going to use it. That's amazing. Okay. So finish the job and then use that person as a referral, as a testimonial or whatever, but finish it. Yeah. And you're talking about relationships, which I think you has been a, a consistent thread throughout this conversation. And you mentioned several names, like the initial engineer that recruited you to Mel. Lily, yep. Mel, right? And your first boss. Uh, no, Sandro was my Italian boss. Your Italian boss. Yes, yep. yes. Yep. So these relations that you built within Lily. Yeah. So spending 28 years there, was it more important to build relationships with people that worked at Lily or the people that were in the Indianapolis community? I think they both matter. Um, or what did you prioritize? I think when you're in an organization, especially as big as Lilly, you have to prioritize the Lilly organization because in order to get work done across a large entity, knowing people across functional areas, being able to have relationships to move things or to escalate things or to smooth over things or to massage things or something Mm -hmm. like that, those things really matter. So Mm -hmm. I think in a large org, that matters. If you're in a startup, for so when I was in the health tech startup, mm-hmm. there were only five or six of us in the firm. So my external relationships really mattered, but we had to be very strategic about those, right? So who are the influential sports medicine doctors? Who are the influential children's hospitals? Who are the influential military contacts that support SBIR work? Right? You had to be very strategic about who those relationships need to be to be able to advance your efforts. While you were building that career at Lilly, did you ever feel isolated from the Indianapolis community? Like if you're focused on growing relationships internally, was there like, cause Lilly's a staple of Indianapolis, Yeah. but I wouldn't say uh, that I'm like connected with a ton of people at Lilly because I do feel like they spend so much time connecting with each other. Um, I, I would tell you that I had a social circle. I told you I was president of the Indy Association of Indianapolis nice. while I was at Lilly. So I think generally speaking, Lily folks are pretty active in the community, Mm -hmm. in the business community, in the civic community, in the arts community. They're on boards. Um, So I don't know that's necessarily um, a binary thing, Mm -hmm. right? Even when I was at Elenco leading the corporate social responsibility initiatives, I served on the board of the Indy Hunger Network, which had Gleaners Food Bank, Midwest Food Bank, Second Helping, Sokoa, Meals on Wheels. And those relationships really mattered because Elenco's cause was food security and being able to make an impact in our local community, those relationships were crucial Mm. to engage our employees, even through some of the volunteerism that we were doing to make sure that everyone knew that this is what Elenco stands for. We stand for global food security and we're putting our feet and our time and our money and our energy to support that commitment. Can you touch... I was just going to ask if, if we could transition a little bit to the, the startup side and the entrepreneurial yeah. side, um, just because I want to make sure you have a chance to talk about that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's fascinating that you went from 20 some years working at big companies to a health tech startup 
to working with the Purdue Foundry to starting your own consulting company. Can you tell us a little bit about what that transition was like and what was most surprising about that for you? Can yeah. I add three, three, three quick comments before you transition in? Sure, yeah, For our please. listeners out there that may not be uh, familiar with the magnitude of Lily. So Lily is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is high level correct. Lily is the number one exporter of pharmaceuticals. In the um, state of Indiana. Yeah. In the state of Indiana. Yeah. And then they just, the Lily Endowment is the second largest endowment, I believe it is, or top, definitely top three, four right there in the world. Mm-hmm. And then speaking of like community, Nate, I, Lily just announced, I think it was a $2.7 billion manufacturing facility in the Leap District, but halfway between Purdue and Indianapolis. That's so cool. That's going to transform like that entire area. Yeah, of the state. yeah. I think really they, they made exactly. two commitments. I think it was one was 1. 1.6 and 3.1. I think it's like 4.7. Yeah. I could be off, but it's several billion dollars. So it's not small, significant. That's huge impact. Yeah, that's huge impact. And I, I bet we could ask you three more hours of questions about mm-hmm. your time at Lilly and Alanco. But it's fascinating to me that you did make that transition into startups, in innovation, entrepreneurship, starting your own consulting company. Yeah. Was that a, a no brainer for you? Or did it take some ruminating decision making to to really make the leap? Yeah, let me bridge from the Elenco because that was my last experience mm-hmm. within the Lilly umbrella. Was Elenco was Did still you follow that spin out? I, I I retired before they spun out. Okay, so they spun out in 2018. They offered us the early retirement package in 17. So I, it was still part of the Lilly umbrella at the time. But one entrepreneurial intrant, I'd call it an entrepreneurial experience that really was, I would say, one of my most, if not the most, gratifying role was leading the corporate social responsibility efforts at Elanco, which turned into an entrepreneurial experience because we were doing a lot of uh, funding and, and donations and stuff like that. And so we were doing a donation into East Africa and the Gates Foundation was the largest donor. And we were in a meet, I was on the strategy committee for the project and we were in Seattle at the Gates Foundation and they asked us, Are, is Elanco gonna be commercializing their products into East Africa to help smallholder farmers? We're like, no. They said, what if we de-risk your investment into that and support you to go in there? Because the only way to sustainably take poverty away is to help smallholder farmers improve their milk yields, improve their poultry yields. And so I secured a $3 million grant from the Gates Foundation to commercialize animal health products for poultry and smallholder poultry and dairy farmers into Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Oh my God. Okay. And so... That was a new business venture. It was entrepreneurial. We had manufacturing, regulatory, marketing, pricing, all the value chain of the firm going to produce smallholder farmer sachets of product for two dairy cows when we were selling to commercial farms at 10,000 head, right? And so that was an amazing entrepreneurial experience where we said we can create a viable business and have tremendous societal impact, right? Mm -hmm. And so the concept is called shared value. It was developed out of Harvard by Professor Michael Porter and Mark Kramer in 2011. So we shaped that whole concept. You talk about innovation, you talk about entrepreneurship inside of a firm, Elenco was 7,000 people, $3 billion, and we were going to go into East Africa and sell to smallholder farmers through distributors. That's quite a feat when you think about it. Like you put in SaaS terms, you're taking a mega... Enterprise SaaS product and taking it down to PLG. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's, that's hard to do. What's yeah. PLG? Product led growth. growth. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that was really an amazing entrepreneurial venture. So then when I said, okay, I'm going to retire, and again, got permission from my wife to take the package. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I knew for the last six or seven years at Lilly that I really wanted to start my own 
coaching and consulting company. Mm. And I knew that was going to be the next chapter. And in before retiring, I was testing the marketplace a little bit, stuff mm-hmm. like that, talking to people, checking my network. And so I knew that, that coaching and consulting was going to be my space. And I knew I also loved tigers because of the leadership characteristics. They have night vision, one of the best night vision of any mammal. And so because I focus on insights, I thought that was a good pairing. And also because of my global experiences, tigers are revered in many global cultures. So that's where I anchored on tigers, right? And I had done my MBA at Purdue. And so I went back to Cranert and I said, hey, you need any coaching? Because I've run the MBA program. I'm an alum. And so they brought me on to do coaching of their executive MBAs. And then I went to the International Center because I said, hey, I've used you for my international uh, talent management work. Do you need any help? They're like, yes, we could use your help, Noel. So then I ended up getting those couple engagements. And then while I was coaching the Purdue MBAs, their career center director retired and they said, hey, Noel, are you up for a, another nine to five? And I said, sure, this would have been March of 2020. So during COVID, right? And so I said, sure, I'll put my name in the ring. And then I got the job. So I ran the career center for two and a half years while I had my company to do coaching and consulting. And then in August of last year, yeah. So about one year ago, I wrapped up that and I came back to my firm full time. What's the number one piece of advice that you could give any executive MBA? So someone who's already in a leadership position, I know you've talked to a lot of different folks that have gone through, yeah. not just through the executive MBA program, but even when you're at Lilly and Alanco. If you could only give one piece of advice. Oh, I'm terrible. I can't. I'm a coach. We don't have just one piece of advice. <laughs> That's not how coaches are wired. Top three. What are your top three? <coughs> what are your top three pieces of advice for a leader? Yeah. So I would say one, you have to be able to listen, right? You have to be able to listen Two, you have to be able to coach, right? And it has to be sincere listening and has to be sincere coaching. You can't do it because you want to get ahead, right? Because you have to be really authentic in your sincere concern for people. And if you're fake listening, people see through that crap, right? And if you're not sincerely coaching because you're really not sincerely wanting to see them be successful, then it's going to be inauthentic, right? So listen and coach. And the third thing is more business related. And I would say, don't just build a strategy, be smart about your strategy, but think as much about implementation as you think about strategy. Because I think I see a lot of people that are either very good at implementation, right? and miss the strategy. They're ready, fire, and never aim, okay? Then I see people that are very good at strategy and they're like ready, aim, and you gotta fire, right? And so if you can combine the two of having a smart strategy with a driven implementation, then that's how you win. That's that, Those are amazing. three golden nuggets. Yeah, that was great. And the, the third one, I, I, I think of ex, the word execution. Yeah. Right? So mm-hmm. What you're yeah. saying is it's, it really does come down to those, they're simple words, but very complex and powerful practice and reality. Yeah. If people are looking to connect with you now, with Tiger and what you're doing, how can they reach you? What kind of people should be reaching out to talk to you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. My four areas of focus are career coaching, executive coaching, cross-cultural competencies, and startup mentoring, right? So if you're an executive or an, a working professional and you are looking for guidance on how do I become more effective as a leader, 
then we should talk, right? If you're leading a startup and you're like, I really need some guidance because founders can be very lonely, right? They have their VCs, they have their board, they have their advisor, but they really can't just go to someone and just let it all hang out, right? And I think having a startup coach that they can just be fully transparent with, I'm concerned about financing, I'm concerned about burn rate, I'm concerned about did I make the right hiring decision, I'm concerned about making the right hiring decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm concerned about my board dynamics. They, they're really on an island. And I think for startup leaders and founders and even VCs, I think VCs should be thinking strategically about investing in coaching for their leaders, whether it's L1 leaders or whether it's L2 leaders. Typically, L1s get a lot of love and attention from investors. But those L2s, when you start to grow to... 50 people and you've got a a line of L2 leaders, those leaders are not getting the coaching that they need. And to your point, Nate, earlier is every individual collectively matters. And if you have a three or five L2s that aren't firing on all cylinders, the risk for sustainability of the firm is there and those cracks are happening, but no one's seeing them because they're only focusing on the L1. Mm -hmm. So I think any startup leader, and any VC firm should be thinking about how can Tiger Careers and Consulting help coach those those startups. And then lastly, I'd say that if there are any elements where cross-cultural business or cross-cultural coaching are relevant, that's where the multiplier effect of, I think, my experiences can really help, whether it's an international student or universities that are working with international students or a startup that's looking to expand to global markets or has a leadership team that's made up of someone from um, this country and that culture and this country, how are they max effective in those cross-cultural dynamics that are really present, but maybe not at the surface, they're below the surface. So hopefully that helps. Those are all really great ideas and potential hooks where people could plug in. Mm-hmm. Uh, this conversation has been amazing. We are at time. Are you okay to go a couple minutes over? Sure. Okay. I don't want to put you on the spot, but we do have what's called the lightning round. And it's, it's fast paced. There are no wrong answers, Love it. but it's just three questions. Three questions quick, right off the top of your head. So yeah. outside of the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what is Indiana known for? Indiana is known for sports. Sports. I love it. The yep. amateur sports capital of the world. Yep. What is a hidden gem in Indiana? A hidden gem in Indiana, I would say is the cultural ethnicity of restaurants and grocery stores on the northwest side of Indianapolis called International Marketplace. There's an Ethiopian restaurant there that we love. There are What's it called? It's called Absinia. And so I think there's a a hidden gem of ethnic cuisines and ethnic grocery stores that if you don't make your way out to the northwest side of Indianapolis, by the way, that's where I grew up. And those are the two McDonald's I worked at Lafayette Road and 38th Street and, and Speedway also. Yeah. Hidden gem. Amazing. Okay. Final question. Who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone who is doing big things. Ooh. I've got a lot of respect for the IEDC. Okay. And I think as I've gotten more involved in the entrepreneurial space, as I've gotten more involved in the business community upon retiring, because you did say when you're at Lilly and Elenco, you're focused, but the amount of effort and energy being committed to and the initiatives coming out of and through and from and by IEDC 
I am so proud to be an Indiana business leader because of all those efforts. You hear about the Lilly announcement. You hear about these initiatives from Elevate Ventures and this whole focus on the black, brown, and female entrepreneurs. You think about uh, the focus on bringing auto sports to Indiana. You think about the semiconductor pursuits. It's just amazing how firing on all cylinders is happening across the ecosystem, across the business community. I think the credit goes to, to the, the leadership. I love that. That was, this has been a spectacular conversation. I did want to say to Tove's point, the Lilly Endowment is the ninth biggest endowment in the world. Ninth, ninth largest in the world. Ninth largest in the yeah. world. Yeah. Insane. It's huge. Yeah. This has been a great conversation. Noel, thank you so much. I did want to remind the listeners that if you want to get your startup featured on Get In, if you send three larges to 16 Tech, addressed to Nate at Powder Keg, we'll wear your startup tee. We'll talk, give you a 30 second shout out, minute shout out, talk about what you're doing, send them to 16 Tech. Guys, this has been a great episode. Thank you so much, Thanks, Noel. Noel. This is awesome. This Thanks for having great. me. It was a pleasure. This has been Get In, a Powder Keg production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for a guest or a segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for Startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.